You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 30th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McIvinney. Coming up on today's programme, former US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger dies at 100. We will not be blackmailed into an agreement. We will not be stampeded into an agreement. We'll assess his chequered legacy. Then we'll head to Dubai for the kickoff of COP28 discuss the latest extension of the truce between Israel and Hamas. And it's Thursday, so Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, joins us for the Global Countdown. Yes, indeed, Vini, we're heading to France today to celebrate the country's music charts. And who doesn't like a little bit of French pop? Plus, the royal reason why Britain has risen in Monocle's soft power rankings, out today in our latest edition. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McIvinney. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who played a pivotal and polarizing role in U.S. foreign policy during the 20th century, has died at the age of 100. Monocle's Andrew Muller looks back on his life. The following statement is being issued at this moment in Washington and Hanover. In 1973, Henry Kissinger, then U.S. Secretary of State, was awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace. The agreement on ending the war and restoring peace in Vietnam was initialed by Dr. Henry Kissinger on behalf of the United States. Shortly afterwards, the great American musical jester Tom Lehrer announced, semi-seriously, his retirement, declaring that political satire had just been rendered obsolete. Nothing that has happened to me in public life has moved me more than this award. For a man ennobled as a peacemaker, Henry Kissinger had a knack for causing arguments. He was born Heinz Alfred Kissinger on May 27, 1923, in the Bavarian town of Forth. The next 15 years were an increasingly difficult time to be a Jew in Germany. In 1938, Kissinger's parents made the perspicacious decision to leave. The teenage Kissinger anglicised his first name on arrival in New York, but never lost his accent. Suspicion persists in some quarters that he maintained his middle European growl as a useful prop in his self-invention as a cosmopolitan intellectual. Whatever faults Kissinger may have exhibited in later life, he was a prodigiously ambitious and industrious young man, a personification of the American dream, who started work at a shaving brush factory, taught himself English, graduated from high school, went to college to learn a trade, accountancy, and by 1943 was wearing his adopted country's uniform back in the homeland he'd left just five years previously. Sergeant Kissinger returned from the war determined on a career in academia. He spent the 50s and 60s at Harvard immersing himself in the history of diplomacy, writing prolifically and beginning to ingratiate himself as a sage and courtier in Washington, serving as a special advisor on foreign policy to Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. Well, Henry, how are you? I just wanted to extend my really warmest congratulations. Well, this is, we all knew, all knew it was going to happen. 
Richard Nixon appointed him National Security Advisor in 1969 and Secretary of State in 1973, a role Kissinger retained even after his patron resigned in disgrace. For occasionally better, often for worse, for most of the 1970s, Kissinger was the dominant influence on America's view of the world. He had his moments, certainly, orchestrating Nixon's stunning visit to Mao in 1972 and various Cold War thawing treaties between the US and the Soviet Union. But he walked a fine line between hard-headed real politic and outright cynicism. Like his great hero Metternich, Kissinger believed that imperfect order was preferable to instability, even at a shocking cost in blood, most infamously in Laos and Cambodia during America's war in neighbouring Vietnam. How many men who listen to me tonight have served their nation in other wars? How very many are not here to listen? The war in Vietnam is not like these other wars. Yet, finally, war is always the same. The covert bombing of two neutral countries, partially conceived, certainly approved by Kissinger, left hundreds of thousands dead and injured. After leaving office, Kissinger continued to write, pontificate and enjoy the admiration of America's conservative establishment. He did so, however, against a growing clamour of dissent over his legacy, not least as more became known about Kissinger's role in sabotaging the 1968 Vietnam peace talks to help ensure Nixon's election. Which is to say Kissinger's role in prolonging by seven years and countless deaths the very war he was eventually garlanded for ending. Within 60 days from this Saturday, all Americans held prisoners of war throughout Indochina will be released. In 2001, the journalist Christopher Hitchens wrote a book entitled The Trial of Henry Kissinger, suggesting that the great statesman was overdue a date with justice, accusing him of further skullduggery in Cyprus, East Timor, Bangladesh and Chile. Some legal opinion agreed. Judges in Chile, Spain and France sought permission to question Kissinger. The legendary globetrotter found himself having to consult lawyers before travelling. The persistent allegation that Kissinger's primary loyalty was to Kissinger appeared confirmed in 2002. Having been appointed chair of the Investigative Commission into September 11th by President George W. Bush, he resigned the position 16 days later rather than permit scrutiny of the interests and clients of his secretive consultancy firm, Kissinger Associates. Esteem granted to a man like Henry Kissinger, who, if there really was equality before the law internationally, would be wanted already in a number of countries for gross offences against human rights. In an interview with this reporter about his indictment of Kissinger, Christopher Hitchens admitted that the chances of an actual trial were slender and that Kissinger's reputation would be protected by his celebrity. Hitchens hoped, however, that his book would change the way Kissinger's obituaries are written, which will annoy him in advance. When you are a principal, you have to make or contribute to making the final decisions. That never occurred to me that that would happen. It wasn't a dream come true. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Mullet. Henry Kissinger, who has died aged 100. Well, as Andrew mentioned in that obituary, one of the pinnacles of Kissinger's career was opening up relations with China. Isabel Hilton is the founder of China Dialogue and a visiting professor at King's College London's Lao Institute. Isabel, can you explain just how pivotal Kissinger's role was when it comes to China? Well, he it was certainly pivotal for Henry Kissinger. In fact, although he tended to uh, allow it to be understood that it was his idea, uh, it was Nixon's idea. 
Nixon wanted Nixon proposed to Kissinger that that um, that it was time to open up relations with China, and Kissinger's initial reaction was, you know, it's a crazy idea. But then, where he was important, and essentially, you know. Kissinger was a fixer, um, and he and he fixed it. He, you know, through backdoor uh, diplomacy, particularly through Pakistan, which had a close relationship always with China. You know, he got to go to China and he arranged the visit, and and certainly history did change. Um, and he rode a very long way on the impression that this was Kissinger, you know, kind of changing world history. But in fact, as I say, he was a facilitator. He managed to leverage that uh, for a very long way indeed. Mm. And how was he viewed in China now? Oh, as, you know, a wonderful old friend of China. In fact, you know, his most recent visit to China was was only a few months ago after the uh, balloon incident. He was already 100. Uh, He uh, went to visit Xi Jinping at a time when you know, the White House was not getting anyone to pick up the phone in Beijing. The White House was visibly annoyed. There were some rather tart statements, you know, but it's a pity that the United States can't get to see Xi Jinping. Mm. And it wasn't clear, and it remains unclear, whether this was Kissinger freelancing at the time it looked as though he might be doing some back-channel diplomacy on on behalf of the United States. Mm. But I think I think not. I mean, one of his great achievements since he left office in 1977 was to continue to leverage that relatively brief and very controversial period in office into a lifetime career using his extensive address book, uh, always available to the media, always creating the impression that he was at the heart of things. Mm. And so it was almost a um, self-perpetuating process, but, you know, clearly making money on behalf of clients whom he was reluctant to reveal, as we heard in in Andrew's obituary. And in Washington, he remained a figure in that sort of network of experts and foreign policy wonks and think tanks. So in the... um, uh, the Woodrow Wilson Center, for example, which convenes, you know, so he 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 maintained a very strong uh, foothold in a number of things, and and you know he would he was certainly very much in evidence. I I last saw Henry Kissinger at an Asia Society gala dinner in New York when he was about he must have been ninety eight mm-hmm. ninety seven, and he was the principal speaker with a, with a voice that seemed to come out of <laughs> the beyond, frankly. Um, so he retained this kind of iconic status. And in China, the obituaries have been full of praise as the man who ushered in an era of good relations, sadly now over. Um, I remember in Washington once, you know, at a lunch, he was speaking and the the room was full of young Chinese desperate to take selfies with him. You know, he had a huge status in China. Mm. And you were also a journalist across Latin America for many years. Kissinger has a legacy there too. And it's highly controversial. Kissinger's legacy in Latin America is pretty toxic, actually. I mean, people know about Chile, where, you know, we had an elected president, Salvador Allende. And Kissinger was part of an operation that was constantly supporting the operation. There was um, the opposition. There was a a, a right-wing newspaper, which still exists, El Mercurio, which was constantly going bankrupt. And, you know, money was being poured in from Washington because El Mercurio was the voice that was, you know, helping to destabilize. Then, you know, they were financing all sorts of operations against uh, Agendi, which resulted in the end in the coup and a lot of deaths. But that, you know, um, after he, he, it wasn't just Chile in Argentina. If you, if you read 
today's newspapers in Buenos Aires, they're revisiting a lot of documents which were, you know, subsequently available, which reveal the extent of Kissinger's encouragement to the coup in Argentina, uh, which resulted in anything between 20 and 40,000 disappeared people. And he was essentially saying, you know, do what you have to do quickly. He was, you know, making sure that they understood that Washington was supporting them. So he was, you know, responsible for bringing into power, you know, in the Southern Cone, two brutal dictatorships. Mm. And just finally on this, it was mentioned, you know, the term shuttle diplomacy was coined because of him. Did he sort of set the mould for how secretaries of state, foreign secretaries essentially operate these days, this jet setting around this world, being quite high profile figures? I think I think that's right. And, and you know, even... You know, in the last few weeks, uh, he was still being consulted by, you know, the current foreign secretary. And and because he made that role so famous, largely through the, the China deal, I think subsequent foreign secretaries felt that they had to kind of live up to Kissinger in some way. Mm. Isabel Hilton, thank you very much. Now here's Tom Webb with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. The centre-right Dutch party New Social Contract has said it will not join coalition talks with anti-Islam leader Geert Wilders. Wilders' far-right Freedom Party won the most seats in the Netherlands' recent general election but fell short of a majority. New Social Contract said Wilders' election manifesto risked breaching Dutch constitution. An Indian national has been charged in New York with plotting to kill a Sikh separatist. U.S. authorities say Nikhil Gupta worked with an Indian official on the failed assassination attempt. The target of the plot has not been named, but was described by prosecutors as a critic of the Indian government. And scientists have discovered a solar system with six planets moving perfectly in sync. The rare planetary system is 100 light years from Earth and was described in a research paper in the journal Nature. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Tom. The Israeli military says the six-day ceasefire in Gaza will continue in light of mediators' efforts to continue the process of releasing hostages. It's been extended for a further 24 hours after Hamas gave Israel a list of women and children to be released later today. But this morning, three people were killed in a shooting attack at a Jerusalem bus stop during rush hour. Journalist Abir Ayoub is following the story. Abir, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how is the truce going on this seventh day? Well, uh, as we know today that the seventh day of truce was agreed on on the last minute before the sixth one um, uh, ended. If this reflects anything, it reflects how uh, intense the negotiations is uh, happening between Israel and Hamas uh, with um Egyptian and Qatari uh, brokers. Uh, we know that um, the, behind the doors, uh, the negotiations uh, and uh, they are not very smooth. This is why we got the the seventh day um, uh, very you know in a very late moment. But however, uh, more than two million million Palestinians in Gaza really needed this break uh, to go and get their basic needs uh, and uh, to you know to have a break of the of the very brutal uh, uh, you know um, aggression they were subjected to. Um, we are not sure uh, about uh, what's going to happen in the next few hours. 
But we know that people really wish that the truce would be extended for uh, extra two hours, which is a thing that um, um, like not a lot of people are optimistic uh, to have. Mm. And we believe uh, Hamas will release more hostages later. Are they still struggling to locate hostages at the moment? Yes, they are. Uh, you are talking about um, a territory, the Gaza Strip, that's separated by Israeli tanks, the north and the south. You are talking about uh, hostages that were captured by different people, and Hamas had to, um, you know, to locate them in different places. And now, in order to get them, they have to to make the movements with the presence of the Israeli army in the Gaza Strip. This is why it's been so hard for Hamas to locate them. How many more Hamas would be able to find and uh, give to Israelis? This is the thing that's making it more harder for, for the negotiations to succeed. And in terms of the Palestinians in Gaza, they were urged to move to the south of the Strip. There are claims that when Israel does end the ceasefire and military action begins again, that they might move further south now. How concerned are Palestinians about that and international organisations? Uh, people in Gaza are very concerned about the whole uh, idea of the war to start all over again. I mean, uh, 50 days uh, of war uh, left people there desperate. Uh, they are, you know, they don't have the access to basic goods, water and food. They lost their loved ones. We're talking about like more than 40 percent of the Gaza Strip were destroyed, uh, either partially uh, damaged houses or uh, totally. So the whole idea of this to happen again and again and to lose more people and more houses is so concerning for for Palestinians in Gaza, this is why they wish that this uh, truce will lend to a lasting ceasefire. However, what we know that Hamas uh, like wants Israeli tanks to leave uh, the Gaza Strip before the the negotiations, uh, which is which makes it harder for for the for Israel and Hamas to reach a lasting uh, ceasefire. Uh, so it's uh, it's pretty complicated uh, mm. idea. And a bit, there are now many Palestinian prisoners who are being held in Israeli jails who have been released. Uh, how are they faring now that they're back in you know Gaza? It's not the the place that they would have left. It's very much changed now. Um. Well, we know that most of the prisoners uh, are from uh, the West Bank, um, and. Yeah, um, I think that the whole uh, atmosphere for these prisoners who left and who said that we were released by uh, the blood of people in Gaza is a hard um, idea for us to, uh, to you know, to understand. So the whole um, the whole idea that these people were released uh, after more than 15 Palestinians in Gaza were killed is something that, that makes it hard for them to mm. to feel happy or relieved. Abir Ayub, thank you. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio.
You're back with the briefing on Monocle Radio. The United Nations annual global climate talks, COP28, begins today in Dubai. This year likely to be the hottest on record. More than 70,000 delegates are expected and ministers and high-ranking officials from 198 countries will try to forge agreement on how to hold global temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Many world leaders will be there, including King Charles III and Pope Francis, but there will be some notable absences and probably a great deal of controversy over some leaked documents that have come to light, showing the UAE intends to use the summit to strike oil and gas deals. Dr Aisha Al-Sarihi is a research fellow at the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute and an associate fellow at Chatham House. Thank you very much for joining me now from COP28 in Dubai. Aisha, for anyone that's not been there before, how are these summits actually set up and what's the atmosphere like? Well, um, so this year, uh, COP28 is held in uh, Expo City, Dubai, uh, which of course has hosted uh, uh, ex- Dubai Expo um, uh, back in 2020. So uh, the venue is a huge, and the way the COP is working, there are two uh, many plenary uh, uh, sessions are taking place uh, at the same time. And also the side events also happening at the same time. So it's quite of uh, a package uh, to discuss many profiles um, simultaneously. Uh, The venue is huge. Um, You need uh, to walk uh, long distances from one place to another. But as you mentioned, the technology is pretty much helping because uh, many of the sessions are uh, live streamed online. So even the ones who are not attending the COP, they can uh, actually attend the sessions uh, online uh, from the UNFCCC uh, website. Um, And then this year, the UAE also wanted to make uh, a difference uh, on increasing the involvement, uh, not only the government or the negotiators, but also to increase the involvement of the private sector, uh, the civil uh, society, um, the indigenous groups, uh, the youth, the, and the NGOs. And for this specific reason, uh, for the first time, the UAE presidency uh, opened uh, a green zone uh, venue. And this green zone venue is free of charge. It's open to everyone. Uh, you don't need uh, an accredited uh, uh, delegation um, to attend uh or visit the green zone. So this is pretty much an opportunity to increase the involvement of the business, the private and the youth, and to get uh, you know the opportunity to, mm. um, to know what is going on, actually. And you do tend to get uh, sort of the bigger, more significant uh, cops thinking about the likes of the Paris one, and you do then get uh, sort of smaller ones that sort of alternates a bit. You know, US President Joe Biden is not attending, which kind of marked this one out as maybe not being as substantial. But we now understand US Vice President Kamala Harris will be attending. Has that sort of raised the hopes at all? Well, um, so the the U.S. Uh, missing the attendance of the COP. This is not a first time the U.S. missed the attendance, but I don't think this uh, necessarily means uh, uh, down uh, 
water downing the outcomes or the uh, the expectations uh, of the COP. Um, uh, for some uh, other countries as well, the presidents are not attending. Um, but what is so important for the COP is actually uh, what happens beyond the COP. Uh, what happens during the COP is important for this year is the global stock take. And uh, it will be the representatives of the country who will decide on the political position of the country to ratchet up their ambitions so they can enhance their nationally determined contribution, which they will update and submit by 2025. And uh, from there, every five years, that actually will what will make the country's position strong uh, or weak. Uh, so I am not pretty much worried that uh, President Biden is not attending. And as I mentioned there, the UAE has been caught out in that uh, document leak, which shows they are wanting to exploit hosting the COP to strike oil and gas deals. Has that handicapped them going into this summit? Well, um, I think we need to uh, a little bit unpack uh, when it comes uh, to the oil and gas countries. So especially for the Gulf countries. Now, the Gulf countries are no longer obstructionist uh, for the energy transition. Uh, but at the same time, oil and gas remains, you know, an important asset for these countries, not only for economic growth, but as an asset to also deal with the climate challenges. So the momentum for energy transition in the Gulf region has taken place already. Uh, however, the Gulf countries are strategic in making their transition. And for them, uh, which I think it's uh, not unexpected uh, to uh, continue with the oil and gas, they are pretty much going to be strategic in their energy transition. And when I say strategic is they will continue to use the oil and gas, but they will need to uh, pretty much find uh, solutions where they cut greenhouse gas emissions significantly. And that can be through the scale up of the carbon capture and storage or the development of the hydrogen. But the challenge ahead is, uh, uh, is uh, huge because uh, these technologies are still not uh, pretty much viable or commercial. And so uh, the, the pathway for the Gulf country is uh, more of a challenging, but for them leaving the oil and gas or switching off the oil and gas tab is like an existential uh, threat giving the, um, the region is, is one of the most vulnerable to the climate change uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the rise in the temperature, the water scarcity, the food security, everything depends on the oil and gas uh, wealth for the region to cope with. Dr. Aisha Al-Sarihi at the COP in Dubai, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. The Foreign Desk is Monocle Radio's weekly world affairs programme. We tackle the biggest global news stories as well as those too often left untold. 
I've been out on the streets of Lagos. People are unable to withdraw their cash. Fights have broken out in banking halls. As well as the occasional retelling of events from days long past. The gates opened and in came this horse, absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, what's it for? Is it some kind of icon? Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. There were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle Radio. Now, in the latest edition of Monocle magazine, which hits newsstands today, our annual soft power survey sees the UK move one place up to seventh. This is in part due to the royal family, seen by the British Foreign Office as an A-list deployable asset, despite having lost its matriarch of over 70 years, Queen Elizabeth II, last year. The royals are, however, increasingly facing tough legacy questions on their travels. Nevertheless, the growing Commonwealth of 56 nations King Charles now leads gives Britain an enhanced global reach. Chris Ship is ITV News's royal editor. Chris, thank you for joining us. Firstly, as an example of the role the royal family plays uh, in its sort of diplomacy, the Prince and Princess of Wales, that's William and Kate, have invited the Crown Princess of Sweden and her husband to attend the Royal Variety Show tonight with them. Is that unusual for this, this event? No, I think the uh, the royal family often like to team up, as it were, with uh, other European royals. And uh, the Crown Princess of Sweden is doing uh, some visits in the UK uh, in any case, and uh, therefore they're joining their uh, their counterparts, if you like, the heirs to the throne of uh, of two European monarchies are, are attending this royal variety performance uh, tonight. And actually, I've seen a similar thing uh, between the the, the the various generations uh, in Jordan, for example, uh, when Prince William visited there recently. He teamed up with the Crown Prince of Jordan rather than uh, King Abdullah, because uh, that's what his that's who would fa- his father would see when he goes uh, on his travels there. But um, I kind of agree with you in, in terms of the soft power. We've had um, three outward state visits this year, uh, which the king is now doing at pace. Uh, and uh, the, the Foreign Office likes nothing more than to dispatch the, the, the royals uh, on, on these visits, as they did this year, to first uh, France and Germany and um, also to Kenya. And just firstly on, on William, does he have strong relationships with other heir apparents around the world? And is this a way of kind of building bridges for the future? Yes, exactly that. Uh, and in, in the same way that the, the king has very close relations with King Abdullah of Jordan, uh, his mother would have had, um, the late queen would have had relations uh, with the, the, the late king of Jordan. So it is a kind of generational relationship uh, that they have. And, uh, and with the Swedish royals being uh, in town at the moment, that is a perfect opportunity for, for William and Kate to team up, despite the other furories that are going on around the royal family at the moment. And the Commonwealth has nations in it that uh, most of them used to be part of Britain's empire uh, in Africa, in the Caribbean, in the Far East. Uh, And so there's that link there. But the royals actually in recent years have been doing a lot of work, haven't they, over the water in the continent to sort of mend fences post-Brexit? 
Yes, and actually, uh, you know, I remember particularly Germany when uh, King Charles spoke um, at the Bundestag and gave uh, the, the large part of his speech uh, in German. Those kind of things go down really, really well. And the Foreign Office always tell us that uh, it's hard to overestimate the impact that these kind of things have when the when the king uh, goes abroad, makes the effort to uh, meet their leaders. It's, it's all about really how these state visits are seen in the in the host country. Uh, rather than how they are seen back in, in the UK. And yes, I think uh, it was it was by no means accidental that the Foreign Office chose for his first two state visits this year to be France uh, and Germany. And the King did very similar things in France, where they were very pleased to see Charles Trois, as they call him, um, come to France the first time as King. And he addressed the French uh, Parliament in French as well. Uh, is that something that uh, I think we're going to see more of in the coming years of Charles? You know, he is older, but still enough years to go out and about around the world. He watched his mother do that for decades. Is he feeling pretty confident now on the world stage? I think the particular change that we've seen since the change of reign, since uh, Queen Elizabeth passed, is that we now do have, once again, a travelling head of state. Remember, Queen Elizabeth uh, had not travelled outside of the UK since uh, a trip to Malta in 2015. And therefore, uh, the old Prince of Wales, uh, as Prince Charles was at the time, would do the travelling on his mother's behalf. But it makes a big difference, I think, for an actual head of state to be doing the visits himself, as the King has now done uh, in France and Germany, as we've just discussed, and also uh, to Kenya as well. And therefore, a lot of speculation about where he might choose next to go um, next year, when, when they tend to travel in the spring and in the autumn. And finally, on top of being assets for the United Kingdom, are they also useful for the sort of Western nations to build consensus on global issues like, for instance, climate change? Uh, King Charles is going to COP in Dubai, but also for causes like Ukraine. We've seen uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales quite heavily involved with that. Yeah, the royal family did a lot on Ukraine when the Russian invasion first happened. And actually, that was a little bit of a surprise because at the time it was seen as a little bit political to be supporting one country um, over another. But uh, we saw William and Kate, for example, help out at the Ukrainian centre in London. We saw the king make some... Uh, pretty um, hard-hitting remarks about the impact of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Uh, so you're right that, uh, that, you know, the royals have what they always tell us is not just this soft power, but also this convening power, the uh, the ability to get very senior people in a room at the same time. Now, that can happen both in this country, but it's also happening um, abroad. It happened in Kenya, where we were uh, last month, but it also is happening right now. The king today is in Dubai at the COP28 summit, and he is uh, going to make a speech there tomorrow. But today he's meeting lots of world leaders. I've just seen some pictures of him uh, meeting the uh, leader of Nigeria. And that is something that, uh, you know, the king, particularly this king, because of the way in which he's campaigned on environmental issues for so many years, he can bring some very, very important people into the same room uh, and try and hammer out some kind of uh, consensus. And we know how passionately uh, this king believes in uh, the environment and how he wants to protect Mother Nature and uh, mm. continue the fight against climate change. Yeah, and really struck by the words last year in his quite passionate uh, tribute to the late Queen when Emmanuel Macron called her not the uh, not a queen, but the queen. It showed the kind of stature that they have on the world stage. Well, Chris Ship, uh, the royal editor of ITV News, thank you very much.
Well, that sound means our music curator and senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, is with us now in the studio once again for his global countdown, which today is soft power themed, Fernando. Absolutely. Uh, to celebrate France's victory in our soft power survey in the new issue, which is out today, by the way, uh, of course, France won. And you know what, Vini? I mean, for listeners of Monaco Radio, they know we, we play a lot of French music. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit my fault as well when I choose the songs for the radio I think the French has such an incredible music history mm. and new artists all the time it's a great country for music and in part those rules that help protect their music industry as well the number of French songs that have to be played versus English songs absolutely uh, it's a very talented country so today's Global Countdown is a little bit of a special it's not the current top five in the French charts but it's a little look back of the artists with the most number ones uh, historically in the French charts there might be a few surprises here and there uh, but you know I think you might like it actually okay and we're kicking off with a French artist themselves so here is our first track in at number Number five. Number five is the great Daft Punk with One More Time. I mean, Daft Punk is incredibly influential worldwide, I would say. Their use of autotune, the French touch, uh, as they call French house music. And this song was number one, I mean, globally. It's a fantastic track. Uh, I love it. Shall we play a little clip mm-hmm. of it? And if I may say, I think this is one of the best pop songs of all time. Wow, okay. Yes. Big, big. (laughs) Well, I mean, they've got quite a lot of epic songs to pick from, haven't they? Uh, But number four on your list, I was really taken (laughs) back by, because I did not expect this artist to have been so big in France. It is. She's huge in France. And I think the thing is, Shakira, she's a global superstar, right? I mean, she sings in in French, actually, in the song that we're going to hear in a minute. She sings in Portuguese, Spanish, of course, her mother language. In English, of course, most famously. She had five number ones in France. She was tied with a comedian called Michael Jung, but we're not playing him today. I had to make a (laughs) few choices here. I'm so sorry. Uh, So this track that we're going to hear, that was a huge number one in France. And in in fact, that song was live from her concert in Paris because she released an album from that tour Mm -hmm. uh, that she did in Paris. The song is a cover. Uh, It's called J'ai âme à mourir by Shakira. Shall we have a listen? Yep. Elle a battu des points contre nous et le ciel Elle nous laisse traversons chaque fois qu'elle ne veut pas dormir Ne veut pas dormir, je l'aime à mourir Elle a de faire toute la guerre Pour être si forte aujourd'hui, elle a de faire well, the tone of her voice really works with beautiful, French, I think. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. And, and I have to say, Shakira's French is much better than mine, I have to say. <laughs> uh, well, I think her best track is Underneath Your Clothes. I think that is a banger from her first al- English album, at least. I think she's underrated. People forget, yeah. actually, how Shakira is such a fantastic force. I grew up in Brazil in the early, well, in the 90s, the mid-90s. She was so huge there. She was singing songs in Portuguese. She was mm. a bit kind of rockier uh, at that time. And now she's this, this kind of pop diva. She can do beautiful ballads, as, yeah. as we've just heard there. Done some well. great collabs with the likes of Beyonce as well. Exactly. 
Who's in at number three? Number three, I love this song. I mean, they're huge in France. The band is called Indochine. They're a pop rock uh, group. They had six number ones in France. Uh, and they are tied. I have, to, I have to be honest here. You might be sad to hear this because tied with Céline Dion. Sorry, Céline. Uh, One day I'll do a Céline special. I prom- I'm promising here on air. Uh, Lady Gaga and Rihanna. But I think Indochine has the best story because they are uh, French indeed. And this song is from 2002. They, they were popular since the 80s but then they were they kind of disappeared but with this track they were back and the French press loved it very mournful track I have to say this is Indochina number 3 with Je Demande à la Lune It's incredibly depressing track, I have to warn you. <laughs> he, I mean, he does say, I don't have much to tell you and not much to make you laugh. But there was a massive summer hit in France at the same time. <laughs> massive summer hit, a but bleak summer. It's bleak, poetic, but beautiful. But okay. beautiful. Okay. Uh, in at number two. Perhaps something a little bit sexier. But first of all, I mean, it's Johnny Holiday at number two. I mean, he's got nine number ones. And, you know... He brought rock and roll to France. This guy is a big deal. Mm. And the He's like ch- their Elvis, isn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Very much so. And to be honest with you, Vinny, he, he could have been a number one. Because the numbers I'm looking here is the official number since 1984. Of course, his career, you know, started much before that. Mm. So he could have been number one, depending on which numbers you use. But Johnny Halliday, fantastic voice, fantastic uh, performance. I mean, when he died in 2017, I mean, it was a national mourning mm. uh, in France. It was like perhaps like Lady died uh, dying here in the United Kingdom. Uh, and this song's quite sexy. He, he wants to kind of, he's promising a lot of stuff to his potential affair. Uh, let's have a listen. It's Johnny Holiday, Je te promets. Power ballad rock chords, isn't it? Classic, and he's promising a moment of fever and sweetness to his lover. Mm. Okay, and the big number one for our number one on the soft power list. Oh my god, I mean, I'm a massive fan of, of our next. In fact, I mean, she was born in Canada, but let's be honest, she's French. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, it's Mylène Farmer. I mean, she is the French queen of pop, and there's so many interesting aspects of her career because she's a cult figure. She's mysterious, she doesn't give interviews, she doesn't have a website, she's not a social media. But a bit the like fans. A Kate Bush figure. Very much so, but. Very, very good comparison. But the interesting thing is she's at the top of the charts. I mean, she goes on stadium tours in France and it's always sold out. So she's a big deal. So it's quite unusual to have like the biggest pop star in a country, but someone who is quite private. Some people said that she had two pet monkeys, which might be true or might be not. Some people say that she eats spiders. Might be true, might be not. We don't know. We don't know. She is mysterious. She's like the Regina George of French music. Everyone's got theories. Okay. But she had 21 number ones in France. And counting, let's be honest. Okay, yeah. I chose uh, a track uh, which was a massive hit in 1991, and it's on our playlist as well. Uh, It's called Desenchanté by the wonderful Mylène Farmer.
Uh, I, I, I love her and she's very special and it's interesting, uh, Vinny, that she's... I mean, I don't think people outside France know much about I've Milan Sommer. I've got to say, until I saw her name on the list, I didn't know much about her at all. I've never heard of her. But I love her. She's massive. 21 number ones. What an incredible career. That sounds very like early 90s Kylie Minogue, that song that we just heard. Absolutely. But if I may say better, because okay. I think Milan Sommer, she's she does play with art as well. Her, the clips, you know, she she's quite androgynous. She plays with history, uh, poetry, uh, gothic imagery as well. Uh, I love a little bit of Kylie, but Milan Farmer. Okay. Well done, Milan Well, Farmer. I did see your Spotify wrapped and I know that she <laughs> Kylie was pretty high, Fernando. Well, Fernando, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Tom Webb. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>